Well, tonight is finals day. Today is finals day. The World Cup final will kick off in, um, in about 20 minutes' time. And so I'll try to get through my eight points as quickly as I can <laughs> for those who'd like to watch it. It's also the final talk in this series uh, in Philippians. And in it, we're looking at Paul's final words and greetings to the church there. Now, the last time I was here on a Sunday evening, I remember it well because it was uh, the evening of Sunday, the 18th of April. And I remember it well because Sharon and I were on our way home from a little weekend away we'd had celebrating our wedding anniversary, the children with with the grandparents, and so we thought we'd uh, take the rare opportunity to come to church together and uh, just uh, sort of sit and not be involved in any way, which is lovely to be able to come and uh, sing and to hear God's word explained. And um, we got to hear the very first talk in this series in Paul's letter to the uh, Philippians, Paul's partners in the gospel a partnership which Paul rejoiced in. And so it's a special pleasure to be able to come and give this last talk in the series, given the partnership that there is between Christ Church Fullwood and St Andrew's Kendry. Paul speaks, doesn't he, in verse 16, of uh, not one church sharing with him except only them, and of how they send him aid again and again. And I relate to that. Certainly in our first year, only you, Christchurch Forward shared with us and have helped us again and again financially, musically. Many of you prayed for us, receive our prayer letter and there are loads of other ways that you have supported us too. So uh, thank you very much for your partnership in the Gospel. It is a real joy and a delight for us at St Andrews to be in Gospel partnership with you, the church family here in Forward. I must confess that uh, since the 18th of April I haven't listened to any of the other talks uh, in the series, but uh, reading the letter, as I have in preparation for tonight, it's been very striking how counter-intuitive and counter-cultural it is. Let me just remind us of what's gone before as we come to consider the final verses of the letter. So in chapter 1, we read uh, that although Paul was in chains and in prison, he wasn't all moany and miserable, as I fear I might be if I were in chains and in prison. No, Paul rejoiced because through his imprisonment, the gospel advanced. His own happiness and freedom were secondary to the advance of the gospel. And then there's his countercultural approach to life and death, as Paul explained that to live wasn't about serving himself, as we often think, it's about me. No, it's about serving Christ, says Paul. And then to die was not loss. Again, as we instinctively think, you know, to die you lose everything. No, says Paul. To die is to gain very much. To be with Christ, which he says is better by far. Then there's chapter 2, which presents a highly counter-intuitive and counter-cultural challenge to do nothing out of selfish ambition. To humbly consider others better than ourselves and to take a genuine interest in in the needs of others rather than in my own needs. And the supreme example which Paul gives was the example of the Lord Jesus who gave up the glory of heaven for the agony of a cross. His royal status in heaven for the role of a servant on earth. Even to death. And it goes to the heart, doesn't it, of gospel partnership. Selfless and sacrificial service. And that's what we in Kendry have received over and over again from many individuals here. But as we all seek to follow that extraordinary and amazing example 
of the Lord Jesus. Paul says we will shine like stars against a culture of sin and selfishness and darkness. Shine like stars. In chapter 3, Paul continues to show us how countercultural Christianity is by setting his relationship with God through faith in Christ alongside human achievement and earthly pleasures. Paul himself was a, a, you know, a high achiever. His CV read very nicely with lots of impressive qualifications. You can see them there in chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. And what does he say about it? At the end of verse 8. It's all rubbish. It's all rubbish. He's actually a lot stronger than that, isn't he? He's really saying something like, um, I consider them excrement, that I may gain Christ. It's counterintuitive and it's countercultural. But the things our world focuses on as supremely important are actually rubbish, worse than rubbish, and calls people, whether wittingly or unwittingly, to oppose Christ. And it leads to hell. Have a look at chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Chapter 3, verse 18. For as I, often, as, as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. It nicely helps us see, doesn't it, what is really important in life. What is really worth striving for and putting our energy and resources into. Not making sure our kids get loads of A stars in their exams or a place on the county sports team. But helping them above all to know Christ through faith. It's counterintuitive, it's countercultural, but it's true. And rather than aiming for an easy and smooth track through life, as we all intuitively try to do, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Sounds mad, but Paul has not lost the plot. He knows that with Christ, verse 11, he will somehow attain to the resurrection from the dead. So Paul isn't focused on getting as much as he can in this life and in this world. It's very countercultural, isn't it? He's not focused on that. He's looking forward to and straining towards the goal and prize. Verse 14, in heaven. The life and, uh, the life and the world to come, which will be infinitely better than even the best things that this world has to offer. I think verse 15 of chapter 3 is very challenging. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. I wonder whether we'd pass Paul's maturity test with these counterintuitive and countercultural teachings given to us in the Word of God be a mark of our lives. And so we come to chapter 4, which is again full of counterintuitive and countercultural ideas. The first part of the chapter, Paul encourages peace and unity between two people who have fallen out knowing that our instinct in such situations is to say well stuff them, stuff them he encourages godliness of thought in verses 8 and 9 in a world that encourages innuendo and crudity and greed and that thinks that our private lives let alone our private thoughts 
don't really matter. Well, it seems to me that um, the final verses that we're going to come to now encourage generosity in a world that looks after number one and contentment in a world that is never satisfied. I've got just two headings for us this evening, really, not eight, you'll be pleased to know. Two things for us to learn from Paul and the gospel partnership which he shared with the church at Philippi. Here's the first. First, the joy of generous gospel partnership through thick and thin. The joy of generous gospel partnership through thick and thin. Paul's joy at being in partnership with the Philippians is obvious. He says in verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. When he says at last, he's not being moody with them as if to suggest that they've neglected him and it was about time they remembered him again and sent to him. No, he speaks more out of relief that after a long while of wanting to send to him, they have at last been able to do so. So, the end of verse 10, Paul says, Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. We don't know for sure what might have prevented them from sharing with Paul, but it may be that Paul himself actually asked them not to send to him, not to send to him for a while, given that in both Thessalonica and Corinth, there had been unfair and potentially damaging accusations and misrepresentation of Paul when he received aid from those who had been saved through his ministry. He got a hard time for that. And that's why he uh, turned to uh, do some tent making in order to uh, get by while he was preaching the gospel for free. But now in prison, well the time was right to allow others who were willing to support him once more. And Paul rejoices that they have been able to renew their partnership. In verses 11 to 13, he goes off at a slight tangent, which we're going to come to in a moment. But the thread of verse 10 is really picked up, I think, in verse 14, where we see the extent of that, their partnership. It is a partnership through thick and through thin. So verse 14 tells us that he shared in his, they shared in his troubles, presumably referring to his imprisonment, that's maybe why they sent Epaphroditus to help Paul, to take him things, to survive in prison. And then in verses 15 and 16, Paul recounts how when he was in need, it was they who shared with him in the matter of giving and receiving again and again. No other church did that, but the Philippians were sufficiently converted and saw how vital the spread of the gospel is in the world. And they put their money where their mouths were. And they became partners with Paul in spreading the gospel. Basically, they paid for it to happen so that Paul didn't have to go and work himself. And Paul spread the word day in and day out, which he couldn't have done if he had to pay his own way. They were partners. They shared Paul's troubles and they also shared their own resources. Notice that it wasn't just a one-off gift to sort of salve their consciences before forgetting about Paul. Have a look at verse 16. He says there, Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. They kept on making sure that Paul was provided for in his ministry. And it's worth knowing as we think upon this for a few moments 
that they, not just Paul, were going through a thin time, a thin time, a rough time. He was in prison, but 2 Corinthians 8 reveals that they were living in poverty. He was in prison and they were in poverty. It makes their ongoing partnership and generosity very striking indeed, doesn't it? In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul speaks of how the Macedonian believers, which included the church at Philippi, how their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity towards him. He says that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Presumably they delighted in their partnership with Paul. It was a great joy to them and it caused them to give even out of their poverty. Paul, as we know, of course, did pay his own way at certain times with his tent making but the brilliant thing about gospel partnership is that some people can be freed up to get on full time with telling people about Jesus. And those who can't do that, well, they're still fully involved in gospel ministry by supporting them. That's gospel partnership. And it was a cause of great joy to Paul. If I had a secular job, as I uh, I once did, then I wouldn't be able to spend the lion's share of my week teaching the people of Kendry about the Lord Jesus. I'd have uh, responsibilities, wouldn't I, to my employer, so I wouldn't be able to do what I do at the moment. But directly because of our partnership, the partnership that our churches share together, I'm paid a stipend by the Diocese of Sheffield, which means I don't have to be a graphic designer anymore to make ends meet. I've been freed up to spend my time teaching people about our Lord Jesus. It is a great joy to me personally, as well as to the church family in Kendry, to be in partnership. I hope it's a joy to you to know that this partnership that we share is one of the means, one of the means, which our great God and Saviour is using to bring people under the sound of the Gospel and to faith in Kendry. And you keep supplying our need again and again, so thank you very much. We have seen how the Philippians shared in Paul's troubles, even when they themselves were in financial trouble. So their troubles were not a barrier to partnership. Troubles, whether they be financial or otherwise, is not a reason to ditch a gospel partnership. In prison, Paul could do very little for them, but they stuck with him. Their extreme financial poverty could have been used as an excuse, couldn't it, to have ditched Paul. Sorry, Paul, you're in prison now and we haven't got anything much. We barely can survive ourselves. We're going to have to um, call it a day for the time being. But no, through thick and thin, on both sides, the partnership continued. We don't know, do we, what the future holds for conservative evangelicals in the Church of England. I think it's fair to, to say that our standing and future within the denomination is a lot more precarious today following the results of that vote in General Synod in York this weekend. I imagine that those with an increasingly liberal agenda will, in due course, want us to go down a similar route as the Episcopal Church in America. Indeed, this very week, as you may have read, a homosexual clergyman in a civil partnership was touted, just touted, as a possible nominee for the post of bishop in Southwark. His name has now been withdrawn, but it will only be a matter of time, won't it, before that comes round again. 
Though we can't be sure what the future holds, you don't need any GCSEs, do you, to see what's coming up the track. How we and other like-minded churches will need partnerships like the one that we already enjoy to support and encourage one another in the truth and in continuing to proclaim the truth. I do hope that we as two church families will continue to know the joy of ongoing gospel partnership through thick and thin. Just before we move on, it's worth noticing that the joy of gospel partnership is not only a joy for those who give and receive, it's also a joy to the Lord. I'll just have a look at verse 18, where Paul describes the Philippians' generosity as a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice that pleases him. Ultimately, their gifts are for God. Generous gospel partnership brings joy to the Lord. God loves it when Christians get into gospel partnership and support one another in gospel ministry. So first, the joy of generous gospel partnership through thick and thin. Second thing to notice, the peace and security that comes from learning Christian contentment. The peace and security that comes from learning Christian contentment. Contentment is very easy in theory, but actually... Being content is so much harder. And in my personal experience thus far, it gets gets harder as you go on. That's what I've found anyway. Paul's contentment here is particularly striking. Chapter 1 reveals that he is in prison for his faith, facing possible death. But twice here in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, he says that he has learned to be content whatever the circumstances, and in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And you can sense his contentment again, can't you, in verse 13. He says, I can do everything through, literally in, him who gives me strength. I can do everything in him who gives me strength. What a great verse that is for taking out of context and abusing. I can climb Mount Everest through him who gives me strength. I can pass my exams without revising through him who gives me strength. No, Paul is saying that he has learned to cope with every situation. He can even do prison because he's in Christ through or in him who gives me strength. Because of Jesus, he can even put up with that. So I guess it would be more appropriate to say I can even cope with failing my exams or knowing that I'll never climb Mount Everest through him who gives me strength. Paul's contentment comes from his being in Christ. He knows that ultimately he is completely safe and secure in Christ. Sure, at the time of writing he is enduring extremely unpleasant circumstances. But first and foremost... He's in Christ. And because of that he can cope. He can even cope with prison and death. Let me explain why this is so important. Our lives are always lived in the context of some circumstance or other. We've all got circumstances going on. Paul's circumstances were bad. He was chained to a prison wall. But we all know that even if our current circumstances are good, 
they can quickly change, can't they? And even become hostile and unpredictable. So where do people find security? Well, the world says that you find security by creating a financial buffer or security cushion. Then you can buy your way out of trouble. Well, we know very well at the moment, don't we, that that is a lie because even our savings are subject to circumstances beyond our control. And lots of people have lost everything, haven't they, in recent years through the global financial meltdown and the collapse of a number of banks. And, of course, it's not a one-off problem. We think, oh, that's that done. It won't happen again. I can carry on now building up the uh, cushion. But it wasn't that long ago, was it, that uh, Bearings Bank collapsed? And Lloyds of London, I think, went quite close to the wire too. Some people lost literally millions and millions of pounds. But if you see things like the world, then being in gospel partnership and uh, giving money to others is crazy because it depletes your buffer and it takes the stuffing out of your financial cushion. But when, like Paul, you see that true security is in Christ, regardless of your circumstances, you're suddenly liberated, liberated to be content, whatever, whether living in plenty or in want, and liberated, of course, to give. When your contentment and your security is not tied to what you have, well, then you're liberated to not always have the next mod con as soon as you like the look of it. You're liberated to give financially to help those who are investing everything in dead-end security. You're investing to help them find true security and contentment in Christ. Liberated to invest in eternity rather than in the things of the world which are destined to perish. Twice Paul says that he has learned to be content. See, it doesn't come naturally. It needs to be learned. Paul has learned contentment. In fact, in verse 12, he, is, uh, he actually says that he has learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. So what's the secret? What's the secret? Well, we're not explicitly told, are we? But I reckon it's verse 13. That in Christ, you can survive every situation. Paul hasn't got sort of stoic self-sufficiency, you know, stiff upper lip and all that sort of thing. What he's got is Christian Christ-sufficiency. Christian Christ-sufficiency. Christ is the source of everything for Paul. Have a look at what he says to the Philippians in verse 19. He says there, And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. He urges them and us to recognise the glorious riches that we have in Christ such that all other so-called riches fade in our thinking and even hardships are understood in the light of being supremely safe in Christ. Paul has learned to think like that situation by situation. It wasn't a one-off thing. He's learned it in all circumstances, situation by situation, circumstance by circumstance. He's had to learn it. So the secret of contentment is not a secret formula that makes it easy. If I just do this, I'll be all right. No, the secret is consciously thinking to ourselves in every situation, in every circumstance, I'm okay because I'm in Christ. These things ultimately don't matter. 
I'm safe in Jesus. The way we think is so important. Remember what Paul said in, uh, in verse 8. Let me read chapter 4, verse 8. I think it helps with this a little bit. Chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about such things. We've got to get our thinking under control if we're ever going to know the peace and security that comes from Christian contentment. You see, it is our thinking that often leads us to not being very content. It's our thinking. Where do your thoughts drift off to when you're not thinking about anything in particular? What do you daydream about? Paul has told us in verse 8 that he has fed his mind well thinks about good things, holy things. But if we are continually feeding our minds with our next project or our next purchase or uh, those TV programmes about sort of, you know, relocation to somewhere nice or, um, well, you're already somewhere nice, aren't you? But you know what I mean. Um, Or home improvement programmes. People fill their minds with those things. Well, it's little wonder, isn't it, if we fill our minds with those kinds of things that we struggle to feel content. We live in an age where we worship material things more than ever. We're bombarded, aren't we, with the advertising on billboards, TVs, on our TVs, on on our computers, when we don't even ask for it, in our newspapers. They're all encouraging us to think about aspiring to a a certain level of comfort or status. Friends and colleagues and neighbours whose minds are on earthly things and whose God is their stomach display or talk about all the wonderful things that they own and it makes us think, well, I'd quite like some of that too. We think, if only I had X or Y or Z, if only I had that particular thing, I'll be content. But it rarely works like that. We rarely are content when we get those things. Isn't that the case? Very soon, you know, the new car gets a little scratch and you want to, you know, you're not content with it anymore. Or the new model comes out. You want the next one up. Somebody else is going to have it soon and you're going to feel like you've got second best. Or you want um, another kitchen like the one the neighbours have got. Or a slightly bigger house or the next fashion item. Or just a bit more money in the bank. We in the global West are undoubtedly the richest Christians that have ever lived in the history of Christianity. In the history of the world, the richest Christians that have ever lived. We have so much, but I imagine we are almost certainly the least content Christians who have ever lived. And connected to materialism, this, uh, this God that so many worship, is another opponent to contentment. And that is my perceived right to have more. We think it's our right. The advertisers actually tell us, you're worth it. And we believe them. I've noticed it more as I get a bit older. I've begun to think that I have a right to certain things. You can fall into thinking, I deserve more. I've earned it, I've worked hard. Well, it's become a daily prayer of mine that the Lord will help me each day to sit loose, 
to material things, to material possessions, to enjoy what he's given me, but to sit loose to them, to keep my heart from the love of money and to trust my Heavenly Father for his good provision. Each day, Sharon and I try to read a chapter of Proverbs or a psalm together. And uh, there, as you well know, there's 31 chapters of Proverbs, so they're great for sort of daily readings in a month. And uh, there's lots in Proverbs to help us to keep a right perspective on what is really valuable in life and really worth pursuing. But referring to material things, a fella called Agur, Agur at uh, the end of the book in chapter 30, wrote down his prayer to the Lord, a prayer which Sharon and I have found very helpful to, a very helpful prayer to echo. Let me read to you chapter Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. Agur prayed to the Lord, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I might have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonour the name of my God. As I finish, did you notice that those who are liberated enough to give are not worse off as a result? Have a look at uh, verse 19. Paul says to the Philippians, My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Giving is in no way detrimental to the giver. God is no man's debtor and if we are in Christ Jesus, then we are gloriously rich. He really does meet all our real needs in life, doesn't he? He gives us value. He loves us. He gives us purpose and meaning. He gives us forgiveness and a right relationship with with God. He gives us the longing of all our hearts, eternal life. And that's not to mention the countless material blessings that each one of us enjoys. Will you pray with me now?